Good morning, and I'm glad to welcome you once again to our online services here at Ivy Creek. We are very grateful that you have joined us uh, once again and uh, have come to be with us this morning. If you have your Bibles with you there in your homes, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me once again to the Gospel of John, the 13th chapter. John chapter 13. Today we are going to continue in a new sermon series that we began last week that I have entitled Lessons from the Upper Room. And the Lord willing, over the next few weeks, uh, we will work our way through chapters 13 through 17 of the Gospel of John. And, and as we do so, our desire is to understand the lessons that, that the Lord teaches us as He gathers there on the night before He was crucified with His disciples in the upper room. And if you were with us last week, uh, you'll know that we examined the first part of chapter 13 in which we saw Jesus kneel before all of his disciples and he, he took their feet into his hands and he washed their feet. And today what we're going to read though is that one of those disciples who Jesus had, had washed his feet, one of those ones that, that had had his feet washed by Christ, one of the same ones who would recline at the table with Jesus and, and eat food from the Lord's hand, well, one of those same ones would go out from the upper room and he would betray the Lord Jesus to his enemies. My guess is that some of you know what it's like to feel betrayed. Um, perhaps you were betrayed by a spouse. Maybe it was a close friend who betrayed you. Some of you know maybe what it's like to be betrayed by a business partner. The fact is that betrayal can come in all sorts of forms and fashions. But in simple terms, betrayal occurs when, when someone who is supposed to be with us goes out from us and joins forces with those who are against us. Imagine two armies that are lined up against one another to do battle. Now, it would be difficult enough to see the ranks of the army that you are opposing growing in its strength and in its number. But just imagine how crushing and how demoralizing it would be to see members of your own army leave your side and cross the field and join the forces across from you in order to fight against you. In effect, that is what we see and what we witness occurring in this section of Scripture that I want to read for you today. It is, a, it is a terrible scene. It is a scene, though, from which we can learn some very valuable lessons. So let's read it together. I want to begin reading in verse 18 of John chapter 13. Follow along with me there with your own copy of God's Word. Jesus says this, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me and he who receives me receives him, he, him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed 
about whom he spoke. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he had said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, I thank you for your goodness to us, and I thank you for this day that you have given us to be able to assemble ourselves together yet once again virtually, but nevertheless literally around your word, to be able to read your holy word and then to be able to study it. And I pray that you would open our hearts to the messages that you want us to understand from the lessons that you would have us to learn. I pray that we would listen with open and attentive hearts and allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to bring conviction, to bring guidance to us, Lord, I ask all these things in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. You probably noticed there in verse 18 that that our text begins with an exception. Jesus says, I do not speak concerning all of you. In other words, there's an exception to what he has just said. And based upon what he has just said, Jesus back in verse 17 had, had given a blessing to all who would follow his example that he had set for them by humbly serving them through his self-sacrifice. He says there in verse 17, note it, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. But then in verse 18, Jesus makes it clear that not all of those to whom he spoke would be blessed. Not all would enjoy a state of happiness. Why? Well, as he goes on to reveal, one of them in the group was a traitor. You know, there's not a word much uglier I think, than the word traitor. Anytime it's used to describe someone, it it dredges up terrible um, and negative images. There are some other words, some synonyms for the word traitor that we use. Sometimes we talk about a conspirator or a defector or a, a turncoat. But based upon what we read this morning and the actions of Judas Iscariot, we know that Judas's name itself is also a synonym for the word traitor. There are others, infamous examples in history. Many of us are probably familiar. We may be even thinking of the name Benedict Arnold when we think of a traitor. Some others might even also remember the name Marcus Brutus, who along with Cassius, turned on Julius Caesar, and they were close friends, and and they killed Julius Caesar. And then let's not forget Ahithophel. Now, that name may not immediately roll off our tongues and immediately bubble to our minds. In fact, many may not even be familiar with Ahithophel or his story. But those who were in the upper room with Jesus that night before he was crucified would have known who Ahithophel was. 
And in fact, my guess is, is that if you had asked those 12 disciples for an example of a traitor, Ahithophel's name would have definitely been on their list. According to the book of 2 Samuel, Ahithophel served as King David's chief counselor and he was his trusted friend. But when David's own son, Absalom, rose up against him in revolt, Ahithophel joined Absalom's rebellion. In fact, it was the words of King David that Jesus quotes there in verse 18. David writes in Psalm 41 verse 9 about Ahithophel. He says, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now, that's a very vivid way to describe betrayal. That, that, that someone would lift up their heel against you. It's as if you are there, even on the ground, in a very vulnerable position. And, and now your friend turned betrayer lifts his, picks his foot up to use it as a means of a weapon by which he can stomp on you and even crush your head and kill you. Now, no doubt this is exactly how David felt. Significantly, his son Absalom's revolt and also his friend of Hithophel's betrayal had, had caught David off guard. He was not prepared for such to occur. And as soon as David heard that Ahithophel had, had turned coat and gone to Absalom's side, David prayed that, that God would, would cause Ahithophel's counsel to Absalom to become foolishness. And God answered David's prayer, not by causing what Ahithophel said to be to, to, to be wrong, but he caused Absalom not to listen. In fact, as it turns out, Ahithophel continued to speak wise words, but Absalom disregarded him. And the scriptures tell us in 2 Samuel 17 that Ahithophel saw that his advice was not being followed. So he went home and he put his affairs in order and then he hanged himself. Now, that story from Israel's history sort of hangs in the background of our text today, and it instructs us in something very significant. In fact, I've given you a few words today on your outline, as I'm prone to do at times, just some hooks for us to hang our thoughts on as we work our way through this passage. And the first word, the first hook that I've given you today that I want us to consider is this. It's the word fulfillment. Fulfillment. You see, though David was caught off guard by Ahithophel's traitorous betrayal of him. Jesus was not caught off guard by Judas's betrayal. In fact, Jesus points back to what David wrote after the fact of Ahithophel's betrayal of him. And, he sh and what it shows is that that was in fact prophecy concerning what would ultimately happen to the Messiah. That, that the Messiah, that Jesus, that he, the one who was greater than King David, would also be betrayed by one who was close to him, by one who enjoyed fellowship and friendship with him. In fact, I think about it this way. The same man who had just had his feet tenderly washed by Jesus now raises his foot in an attempt to stomp Jesus and to crush him. He raises his heel up against Jesus. Now, this recognition of just how clearly everything was prophesied about Christ in the Old Testament 
is completely and perfectly fulfilled in the New Testament, I believe that that should bolster, that should support, that should reaffirm our absolute confidence in the scriptures that God has given to us. In fact, we have another psalm that David wrote concerning Ahithophel that, that bears upon this point, Psalm 55. And in Psalm 55, David says this, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. Now, in both Psalm 55 and as we read earlier from Psalm 41, what we recognize is that David's experience at the hands of Ahithophel ultimately foreshadowed the even more sinister and wicked betrayal that Jesus the Messiah would experience at the hands of Judas hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. There are even other Old Testament prophecies concerning Judas' betrayal of Jesus that we see fulfilled in the New Testament. For example, Zechariah chapter 11, we find prophecy concerning not only the price for which Judas would betray the Lord, but we also see exactly what Judas would do with the money once he received it. I would encourage you to go back and read both Zechariah 11 and then go back to, and consult Matthew chapter 27 because there in his gospel, Matthew tells us everything happened just as the prophet had prophesied it would hundreds of years before. And what all of that means for us is, as I said earlier, everything that was prophesied about in the Old Testament was completely and perfectly fulfilled in the New Testament. And that should cause us to be absolutely confident in the scriptures that we hold in our hands. These are the inspired and the inerrant word of God that we can rely on. So that's the first thing that I think this, this passage, this lesson that we learn from this text should teach us. But then notice the next hook. There's another word there that we need to consider based upon what we read. We not only are confronted with the issue of fulfillment, but the second word there that I want you to note is the, is the issue of faith. Faith. Jesus just drops this bombshell on the 12 there in the upper room, telling them that one of them is a traitor. And while that was devastating news for them, in fact, according to the other gospel accounts, they all began asking, is it I? Am I the one who will betray you, Jesus? As shocking and as devastating as that was for them to hear, consider just how encouraging Jesus' words are in verse 19. Because he follows this, he, he, he puts in the context of it, revealing to them that one of them is a traitor. He tells them that, but then he also says this, I tell you this before it comes, so that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. In other words... What Jesus says is that this, this evidence that, it, that he who, who was the God of very God being with them could, could tell them that something was going to happen, something terrible, something horrible was about to take place, that actually proved that he was who he said he was. Consider the fact that because of what Judas would go out and do in just a very few short hours, Jesus would be dead. Imagine how absolutely terrifying that would have been for those disciples. How, how easily they could have been convinced that Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be all along. 
that he was just another man, that he was just another teacher, that he was, he was someone who was deceived about himself, and even worse, that he was someone who was intent on going out and deceiving not only them but many others. Jesus knew that that, that could have happened, which was why he said to them, he knew that their confidence could be easily destroyed, so he said to them, I'm telling you this is going to happen before it happens so that when it happens, you'll remember that I told you it would happen so that you will remember that I am. And what's interesting is in, in the Greek, in the original language, there is no he at the end of verse 19. It just ends, I tell you all of this so that when it comes to pass, you will believe that I am. In other words, Jesus is intentionally using the covenant name of God that God had given to Moses. Moses asked God, who am I to say who sent me? And God told him, you tell them I am has sent you. I am is my name. And here Jesus takes that name for himself, thereby clearly equating himself with God. Furthermore, we should recognize that that since Jesus makes sure that, that his disciples know that this terrible betrayal would indeed occur, then they could be confident that he would not be defeated by it. In fact, his foreknowledge, Jesus' foreknowledge of what would occur reveals that he is superior to all the forces that were aligning themselves against him. And by revealing in advance what would happen, Jesus is showing them that he is ultimately in charge of all things, that he is sovereign and that he is in control. Now, Jesus had already emphasized this to his disciples earlier. Back in John chapter 10, verse 18, he says to them there, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. Later, after he's arrested and he's standing trial before Pilate, Pilate thinks that he's in charge of all the things that are going on. And Jesus looks at him and says, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. What all this reminds us of is that Jesus was not some helpless victim. He he was not unwittingly betrayed by someone close to him and, and forced into something that he could not control. No. Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords who willingly laid down his life so that we might be saved from our sins. What was about to happen to him was terrible, but it was all a part of God's sovereign plan. You see, just as in Genesis 50, it reveals that Joseph could look at his brothers and say, what you intended for evil, God used for good. So Jesus right here is instilling confidence in his disciples and he could say to them, what one who betrays me intends for evil, God will ultimately use for my glory and for your good. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know that that should comfort you and me. There is a lesson here that we need to learn, especially during times and seasons when our circumstances might indicate to us that the Lord is not in charge, that somehow or in some way he's being outpowered or outmaneuvered. Brothers and sisters, nothing could be farther from the truth. No calamity, 
no sickness, no upheaval in the economic markets, no collapse of worldly powers, no microscopic virus that may move its way across our population. Nothing, absolutely nothing has authority over King Jesus. He who sovereignly stood behind the circumstances that ultimately led to his own betrayal and death is also the one who declared that death would not defeat him, that he would rise from the grave, that he would ascend back to the right hand of his father. And all of those things have occurred and now we wait patiently and we wait expectantly for his soon and quick and sure return. Consequently, do not look around and be dismayed and be disheartened by what you see and by what you hear. This same Jesus is still in control and he still calls us to faith in him. So we've been confronted with the fulfillment of scripture. We've been called to faith. In Jesus, but then let's continue our examination of this text because as we do, we find the third word, the third hook that I want us to hang our thoughts on today. And it's the word that I provided for you there. It's the word forbearance. Forbearance. You know, forbearance is a word that is not really commonly used in our vernacular as much as it used to be. Uh, but to forbear with someone means to be patient with them. It means to show them mercy. It means to exhibit self-control and restraint with regard to your interactions with another individual. Now, I don't think it takes much explanation to prove that Jesus had shown much forbearance to Judas. That he had been patient with him. That he had been merciful to him. I mean... Jesus had already prophesied what was going to happen to him and he knew Judas was the one who would betray him. In fact, all the way back in John chapter 6, we read that Jesus had known who Judas was. In John chapter 6 verse 70, Jesus says, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and even one of you is the devil? And John fills in the blank for us in verse 71. He says, He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the one of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So what we realize is that not just throughout this night, the night before he was crucified, had Jesus been, been showing mercy and, and patience and forbearance to Judas, but really the whole time that Judas had been following him, the whole time that he had been flanked by his 12 disciples, Jesus had known who Judas was and what he would do. And in light of that realization, I think that we can say unequivocally that Jesus showed Judas continual patience, mercy, Love, forbearance. I want us to consider this from a couple of perspectives. First of all, consider that all that Judas had been exposed to as one of the 12 disciples. He had been given a first-hand view of the majesty and the glory of God in the flesh. He, he had seen Jesus perform miracles. He had heard him preach sermons. He had heard him deliver the parables. He had watched lives that were changed by Jesus firsthand. Judas's personal testimony with regard to all that he had been blessed to see and to hear and to experience was unparalleled save for the other 11 disciples. Think, think of all that Judas had been able to do as well. I mean... He had been part of the 70 
who had been sent out into the villages of Israel to preach Christ according to Luke chapter 10. And he had doubtlessly performed miracles in Jesus' name. He had ministered along with the other disciples in his time of following Jesus. And in all of these ways and more, Jesus had been loving on. He had been, he had been showing forbearance to Judas. But that's still not all. On this particular night, as we mentioned earlier, there in the upper room, Jesus had washed Judas's feet. He had already demonstrated a, a parable to him about how he would come and, and he would ultimately do for him on the cross exactly what he would do for them parabolically when he washed his feet. That he would selflessly sacrifice himself and shed his own blood for the forgiveness of sins. However, notice this as well. With, with the foot washing completed, all the disciples gathered themselves around a table. And they gathered themselves there to eat the meal together. And unlike Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper, where they were all on just one side of the table and they were either seated or standing, this was not the way that things were done at that time. Rather, as was typical of meals that were eaten in that culture and at that time period, these tables or, or tables were, were positioned in, the, in this, the, the position of a U or a V shape. And Jesus would have been at the very middle of that. And all the disciples would have been fanned out to either his right or to his left. And each of them would have been lying down or reclining on a cushion. And they would have been propped up on their left elbow. And they would have taken their right hand to grab the food from the table that they would have eaten. And, and what we find is that having gotten into that position, according to verse 21, Jesus announces, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, as I mentioned earlier, according to Matthew chapter 26, every disciple began asking, was it him? Would he be the one that would do that? In other words, none of them in the room turned and looked at Judas and said, I knew it. It had to be him. I knew he was the one who was going to do that. I always was concerned about Judas. That was not what took place. Rather, all of the disciples looked at themselves and they asked themselves, will I be the one who betrays him? Now, according to verse 23 through 25, this disciple whom Jesus loved, who is later revealed to us to be John, he, he was leaning on Jesus' bosom, leaning back into Jesus' chest. And as he does so, Peter gets John's attention from where Peter is seated. seated he sees John and he, he asks John, he motions for him to, to ask Jesus, Lord, who is it? John does. And then in verse 26, Jesus gives the answer. He says, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And then we read, having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, hang with me for just a moment because I want to try to reconstruct what is taking place in this room. If we think about it, we can begin to sort of figure out the physical setup of these disciples around this table. You see, if Jesus is resting on his, his left elbow and if his feet are, are, are pushed away from the table and he's using his right hand to, to take food from the table and eat it, 
And if it is John who's leaning back into Jesus' chest, into his bosom, and is able to do so intimately so that he can whisper and ask Jesus, who is it that's going to betray you? Then that that means is that John would have been to Jesus' immediate right, at his right hand, leaning back into his chest. But then also think about this. For Jesus to answer him and say, it is the one whom I give the bread to after I dip it, would mean, as most scholars would say, that Judas would have been to Jesus' left because it would have been easy enough for him to just reach around his shoulder to give the bread to Judas. Now, if that setup is correct, and many scholars believe it is, then on this final night that Jesus had with his disciples, knowing full well who Judas was and what he would do, Jesus arranged it so that Judas was right next to him in a place of honor. And then consider this, as William Barclay has written, to eat bread with a person was a sign of friendship and an act of loyalty. And then as another has written, the very act by which Jesus identified Judas as the traitor was itself an act that everyone else except for perhaps John, who was in on the secret, would have taken as an honor that the Lord was paying to Judas. The host at a feast would draw from the bowl a, a, a particular tasty bit or, or he would dip the bread into the bowl and he would pass it to a friend as a mark of honor or friendship. This is the Lord's final gesture of love toward Judas. And it was one last opportunity for him to repent and to receive the love and the mercy that the Lord had offered him. Of course, we know Judas did not repent. Our Lord's forbearance, his, his patience, his mercy, his continual love demonstrated to Judas. It didn't penetrate Judas's heart. And what this forces us to acknowledge, as we have seen with Judas, is that even having the best example in the world to follow is not enough to change a person's heart. What better example could there have been than the Lord Jesus himself? Who better to have followed and to have watched than the Christ? Yet Judas was lost. Furthermore, it takes more it takes more than simply being exposed to gospel preaching and sound doctrine to convert a sinner. Certainly no one heard better sermons or was taught better theology than Judas, yet he remained lost. And it also takes more than doing Christian things while being surrounded by other Christians for a sinner to be converted. As I mentioned, Judas was right in the mix when ministry was being done. He was one of the 12 that when Jesus performed the miracle of the loaves and the fish, he was one of the 12 who was delivering the bread and the fish to all the crowd. He was one of the same ones who was picking up the reserves after it was all said and done with. He was the one who held the money box and was the treasurer for the group. He did all of these things while he moved along with the disciples and yet he was lost. I want you to know this is an absolutely sobering thought. Judas' example stands as a stark warning for 
everyone, but particularly for those who have been so close to church all of their lives, so familiar with religion, so quick to know all of the do's and the don'ts of Christianity, but who have never entered into a relationship with Jesus. It's a warning that that simply being exposed to Christian activity, simply being able to recite the right things while hanging out in the right crowd, that is not the same as having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. As one has put it, it is a testimony to the deceitfulness of sin that we are able to fool everyone else around us, but we cannot fool Jesus, and he is the only one that matters. Think about it. No one, not a single disciple turned to look at Judas when Jesus said that there was a traitor in their ranks. In fact, other than John and perhaps Peter, even when Judas left their company, That night, none of them seemed to understand what was going on. In their minds, Judas was just as qualified, just as trustworthy, just as much in the fold as they were. And yet, as the scriptures teach, he was lost, and he was lost eternally so. I believe, sadly, that there are still those today who are going through the motions and making all the right moves to act and to speak and to live like a Christian, but their hearts are far from Christ. If that's you, then I want to warn you, first of all, that you cannot depend on external things to save you. You cannot do enough good things for God to earn his favor. You may have earned the praise and the respect of all of those who are around you, but in the end, it doesn't matter what others think. The only thing that matters is what God thinks of you. And that is determined by what, by if you have truly trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. And if you have given your whole heart to him and made him Lord of your life. Now, Because that is the case, then let me follow that warning then with this invitation. Your lot is not sealed today. It is not too late for you to repent and to receive the offer of Christ's love and the offer of forgiveness and his offer of eternal life. The Bible clearly states that if you will humble yourself and if you will truly repent of your sins and throw yourself on the mercy of Christ, he will receive you and he will save you. What I want you to know is that the apostle Peter speaks of both this warning and this invitation, only he does it in reverse order. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he starts with the invitation. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you. He is forbearance toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the invitation. But then notice the very next word, very next verse contains the warning. Verse 10, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Listen, I want you to know that the Lord's forbearance is extended to you today. 
He wants you to repent. He wants you to turn to him. He is giving you every opportunity to do so. But know this, there will come a time when the grace and the mercy of the Lord will give way to judgment. And that brings me to the last point. The last hook on your outline today from our text. You see, we've been confronted with the fulfillment of Scripture. We've been confronted with the faith that we must have in Christ. We've considered the forbearance of the, that the Lord showed to Judas. And now we recognize the finality. The finality of Judas's decision. Leslie Newbingen has written concerning Jesus giving the piece of bread that had been dipped to Judas as the Lord's final act of love toward him. And with it comes the, the decisive movement of judgment, he writes. At this moment, we are witnessing the climax of that action of sifting, of separation, of judgment, which has been the central theme in John's account of the public ministry of Jesus. And he, finalized, he finishes this way. He says, so the final gesture of affection by Jesus precipitates the final surrender of Judas to the power of darkness. John tells us in verse 27 of our text that having received the bread that, that Satan entered Judas, and then we read this, then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Again, no one else other than John and perhaps Peter knew what had happened, but Judas knew that he had been exposed. The mask had been pulled off. And when he looked at Jesus, he knew that Jesus knew who he was and what he intended to do. And Judas left Jesus and the other disciples, and he went out to betray the one with whom he had spent the last three years of his life. And in doing so, he turned away from the love and the mercy, and the offer of eternal life, all for the paltry sum of 30 pieces of silver, the price that would have been paid for a common slave. For that price, Judas Iscariot betrayed the Lord of glory. And then verse 30, we have that chilling verse that rings with the finality of the moment. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out, and it was night. It's interesting that John would note that it was night. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus has been presented as the light. His, the opening verses to his entire gospel begins that with G, in Jesus was life and that life was the light of men. In John chapter 8 and in John chapter 9, Jesus himself declares, I am the light of the world. If we read the other gospels, we'll find that on the moment when Jesus was stretched out on the Roman cross and he hung there between the sky and the earth, that the, all the earth went dark, that, that the whole area went dark for the period of about three hours. And what all of those passages of scripture communicate to us is that in Jesus we see light and that being evident then we must realize as James Montgomery Boyce has written that to leave Christ's presence is to go into darkness and not just the darkness of physical night either but spiritual darkness which means death and damnation Boyce continues this way. He says, Judas went his own way. He quotes from Acts chapter 1. Judas went his own way, but then he turned from Christ and so found that darkness that endures forever. Such presents for us Judas's awful, terrible, and final end. So in this passage, we have seen the finality of Judas's awful betrayal of Jesus. 
we have witnessed the forbearance of Jesus toward Judas, even though he knew what Judas would do. We, we have seen the faith that the Lord sought to nurture in the hearts of his disciples by telling them what would occur before it happened. And then we have seen the fact that Judas does exactly what the Old Testament said would happen, thereby fulfilling prophecy. And as I reflected on this text this week, and as I reflected upon this sermon that I have now preached to you today, I couldn't help but think once again about that quote from Leon Morris that I shared with you last week. Regarding the gospel of John, Morris said, it is like a pool in which a child may wade and an elephant may swim. And I believe the same can be said of this passage here in John's gospel this morning. You see, there is so much more in these verses that beckon our attention. Yet from what we have studied and from the lessons that we have identified this morning, I believe there is a clear and compelling call that every single one of us must consider and reckon with. And I've stated it for you in my sermon on the sentence. And it's this. Judas's act of betrayal is both a warning to not confuse Christian activity, having a Christian reputation, or exposure to Christian doctrine with an actual relationship with Christ. And it is an invitation to receive Christ's love and gift of eternal life through faith in his atoning sacrifice. Put very simply, Judas's example presents us with a warning and an invitation. As one has put it, there is a real danger of having a false profession of faith in Christ without a true possession of Christ. There is a real danger of being so close to Jesus yet remaining so far away. That was Judas' story. Oh, but friend, let me warn you. Don't let that be your story. Come to him. Fall on your knees before him. Repent of your sins. Confess him as Lord. Don't trust in other things. Don't deceive yourself. Rather, trust in Christ and in Christ alone. And I conclude with this reminder. Judas' betrayal of Jesus, it was so cruel and it was so heartless, yet it paved the way for the Lord Jesus to suffer the humiliation, to suffer the sorrow and the grief of the cross. Listen, for our salvation. Christ endured all of that for us so that we might be saved. Even in the midst of the cruelest disappointment of betrayal, Jesus did not fail to place the salvation of the world before his own troubled heart. What a lesson we should learn and what a love that we should receive. Brothers and sisters, this is another lesson from the upper room and it is the word of God for the people of God. Would you pray with me? Our Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for enduring for us what you did. Going to the cross in our place for our benefit so that we might be saved, that you suffered in our place. You were our substitute. You were the sacrificial lamb upon whom our sin was laid. 
And I thank you for that because that is the only, only thing that we have that we can plead before a holy and righteous God. We cannot plead anything that we have done. We cannot plead our education. We cannot plead our works. We cannot plead our association with others. All we can plead before a holy God is that Jesus Christ died for my sins. Thank you for dying for my sins. My prayer this morning is that if there is anyone here, anyone listening, anyone who will come along later and listen to this sermon, that they would truly be introspective and look into their own hearts and that they would truly ask the question, do I possess the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior? Have I humbled myself before Him, repented of my sins and trusted in Him? Or am I a betrayer? It is my prayer that by your Holy Spirit, you will draw men, women, boys, and girls to yourself in an everlasting salvation relationship. I pray that you would do this for their good and for your glory. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's name.